right, good morning, Traders Point fam. How are we doing today? Good, good, good to see you. Want to uh, welcome everybody gathered across all of our locations. Those of you joining us online, I know we have a number of people joining us from all over the country. And I especially want to give a, a special shout out to those of you at our Midtown campus. Last week, we launched Midtown, uh, relaunched it actually. And uh, just heard so many great reports about just the spirit over there. And uh, even though we had bad weather last weekend, incredible launch. And I uh, cannot wait to get over there uh, to be in person with all of you and uh, say hi and uh, just hang out with you a bit. And if you are um, just, if this is just your first time to be with us, I uh, just want to welcome you. We have been in a series of teachings uh, since the beginning of the year where we are just walking our way through one of the greatest sermons ever preached, like of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded in Matthew chapters five through seven. And when I say greatest of all time, like, I mean, like if this sermon, uh, if it were a song, it would be Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Like if it were a dessert, it would be chocolate molten lava cake. Can I get a good amen? Right? If it were a moment in sports, it would be Michael Jordan's flu game. All right, I mean, it's that kind of a message, but it's way better because this is Jesus at his absolute best, which is saying a lot because Jesus' highlight reel is pretty impressive. And in Matthew chapter five, Jesus climbs up on a hillside and he begins to, to teach. And what he's trying to do is he's not trying to download more information that we can know. And he's certainly not trying to modify our behavior. Jesus is trying to go a level deeper than that. And if you've been with us, especially over the last few weeks, a reoccurring theme is he's really driving down on motivation of the heart, which goes way beyond like um, perception and outward behavior, even though those things certainly have their place. What Jesus is doing is he is describing the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, hey, here's what the world uh, was meant to be like. This is what it should have been like. This is what it could have been like. But sin kind of messed all of that up. But now uh, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to usher in my kingdom to the earth. So what he does is he slaps a set of kingdom lenses, if you will, over the way we see things. And you've kind of heard this like reoccurring refrain throughout the message series. Jesus would say, hey, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, like, hey, here's how I know you see this topic or this subject, but let me kind of put a set of kingdom lenses over the way you see it and flip it right side up. And this is the way my kingdom should be. And I just want to stress this. This is going to be so important, not only for our teaching of the last two weeks, but our teaching today. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was addressed towards his followers. And uh, the Bible word for that is disciple. Uh, for all practical purposes for us, it means those of us who are apprenticing to Jesus. Or to say it another way, uh, we are being formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And all of that is different than belief in God. Believing in God and following Jesus are not the same. And Jesus says, I'm speaking this message to those of you who are followers. And here's why this is important. He says, be salt and light. Change the gravity of whatever room you're in. Be preservatives of my kingdom coming, which means you're going to see things and you're going to live in ways that are upside down to the rest of the world. Now, over the last two weeks, Jesus has addressed some incredibly challenging subjects. And if you have been here, would you not agree? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, amen, right? I, I, I'm just so thankful you all came back, all right? I mean, after the ground and pound we've taken, Jesus has talked about anger and lust and divorce and the integrity of our word and revenge and loving enemies, all right? And we're like, man, aren't you glad that's over? But take another breath because he's got more to say, all right? So, so what Jesus is gonna do is he's driving down on motivation of the heart and he's gonna continue that as we come to chapter six. I hope you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't, it'll be on the monitor beside me. And we're just gonna take this just like we've been doing, just line by line. I'm just gonna read and explain, read and explain. And so starting off in verse one, Jesus says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. So right there's the motivation. And then he says something rather sobering, for you will lose the reward from your father in heaven. Now I just wanna draw your attention to those two little words right there, like watch out. I was thinking about that this last week. When, when do we say that to others? Well, it's like uh, if you're on a hiking trail and you see that they're getting ready to step on or in something, what do you say? Watch out, right? What, why do you say that? Well, because you see it, they don't. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, I see something that perhaps you don't. And he says, watch out. And I think it's so important to understand that Jesus is not saying that we should never do a good deed publicly or that it's wrong to receive credit or appreciation for serving someone. He's not saying that. He is addressing motives and motives can be so sinister. Here's what I mean. I never had to have a lesson on how to be um, greedy or selfish. Like that just came hardwired in, right? I think my very first word that I said was mine, right? Now somewhere, and I'm guessing probably that was true for you too. Now somewhere, I don't know, sometime in grade school, maybe um, something happened. You did something nice for someone and actually you felt pretty good for doing it. And you're like, whoa, that's a new feeling. Right, like you, you're sitting there and you're having lunch and your uh, friend forgot theirs. And so you split your PB&J with them. And it felt so good. And actually everybody else around the table were like, like, wow, like you're so generous. And that did something like you're like, wow, that actually feels good. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, if you're not careful, we start doing nice things for other people so that we can please them or so that we can receive admiration. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, man, if that becomes your motive, like watch out. And then he says, you're actually losing the reward that you'll get from your heavenly father. Now, what does that all mean? Well, we do know that the scriptures teach about like there being rewards in heaven. I've actually taught about that before. I don't have time to get into it today. How does all of that work? Like, I don't really know. I haven't been there yet. But I do know that Jesus seems to be calling out a reality that he is aware of, that there will be rewards in heaven. And when your um, sole purpose is to receive recognition from, from others, he goes, hey, that's actually the reward that you'll get in and of itself. Watch out. Now, verse two, he says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Now, keep in mind that this is long before the days of social security and welfare. 
So voluntary charity and donations for those in real need had formed a key part of ancient Jewish life and it was considered to be an important virtue. And the technical term for this type of generosity was almsgiving, which is actually one of the three descriptive words the Bible teaches for generosity. I think oftentimes we just throw it into one word, like, you know, just give. And the Bible actually uses three words for it. It uses um, almsgiving, which is what he's talking about here, meeting like real tangible needs of others. Another word is offerings. We talk all about that in the Old Testament. Burn offerings, grain offerings, whole, you know, animal sacrifices, all that stuff. And then the third would be tithes. And we'll get to that in, in just a minute, the, the differences between the three. What Jesus is addressing here is almsgiving. And he says, it, what had happened is that almsgiving had turned into a performance. And he uses the word hypocrite, which is actually a word that they use for Greek actors who wore multiple masks in a play. And so you were just sort of coming across as a certain kind of person. And it was different depending upon who you were around. And he says, hey, be careful that you're not like blowing your trumpets. Now, I don't know that Jesus literally meant that they were walking through the synagogues blowing literal trumpets. I think it's metaphorical. We use it today. Like we say things like, hey man, you know, don't, don't toot your horn. Kind of the same idea. Uh, but uh, one scholar said that oftentimes what was happening is that um, they would take their loose change and as they were walking by the collection receptacles, instead of just setting it in, they would throw it in to create all kinds of noise. And it, people would turn their attention and go, oh, they're, they're being generous. And Jesus says, that's a performance. Now, once again, like, I think that there are worse sins that we could commit. I don't even know if he's necessarily saying it's a sin. What, what he is saying is check the motives of your heart. And if that's your motivation, then the reward that you get from other people admiring your generosity will be all of the reward that you get. Now, I think it's important to understand that Jesus here is not saying that we should never thank someone for their generosity or that we should never personally disclose our own generosity. He is simply making the point that our motivation should not be for self-promotion or praise. Now, he actually goes on and uses that same thing to talk about um, two other disciplines, um, prayer and fasting. And next weekend, Pastor Ryan is actually gonna address those two subjects. What I wanna do and the remainder of our time is skipped to verse 19 through 24 because Jesus really drives down on the root of this issue. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Now, I think that you all likely know that like wealth in the first century did not, um, uh, was not made up of like stock options, year-end bonuses and Bitcoin but it was um, metals and cloth. And that was subject to decay and rust and theft, especially like in the hot, sandy Palestinian climate in which they lived. They also didn't have um, safes or bank deposit boxes. And so their wealth was always subject to being stolen, putting their future at risk. So once again, one of the principles that we've come back to over and over again in this teaching is to understand what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. Now, Jesus is not against savings accounts, 401ks, or whatever it is that you're into collecting. Uh, hoarding, maybe, but not saving, right? In fact, in uh, Proverbs chapter 13, it, it throws out this little nugget. It says, a good person will leave an inheritance for their children's children. And that requires some planning. 
Like that requires some wise investing and some diligent saving. So Jesus isn't against savings accounts. What he is saying is remember to invest in something more durable and more eternal than the material. That's what he's saying. Look what he says in verse 20. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Which I don't know about you, that just begs the question, how do we do that? Like I checked and I have never seen that heaven is being, you know, publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So how do we invest in heaven? What is that all about? And uh, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus actually teaches a parable that actually gets to this very thing. Uh, Jesus uh, says, hey, there's this farmer that was wildly successful. And uh, he ran out of barn space. He ran out of storage space. And the storage space he had was adequate to meet the needs of his immediate family and their future. But because he was so successful, so good at what he did, he didn't have enough space. So he tore down those barns and he built bigger ones of which most of us would look at that and say, I want to be like that guy. Like that's like the American dream. Jesus calls him a fool. Now, not, not because he was successful, not even because he built bigger barns, but because he saw his material possessions strictly through the here and now, that he was blind to the eternal realities of it. And then Luke drops this little truth bomb that actually sheds some light in what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. He says this, he goes, so is the one, that would be you and me, who lays up treasure for himself or herself, and this is the key, and is not rich toward God. Meaning you don't see these material possessions through the lens of eternity. And being rich towards God does not mean make God rich because he already owns it all. Like he does not need your money. It is rather to recognize the source of our wealth and our ability to make wealth and the difference that we can make with it uh, on earth as kingdom representatives, uh, rather than just seeing our worldly possessions as mine. And this is what I'm gonna do with it. And if I actually need bigger barns, then I'm gonna build bigger barns to store it. it it's this posture, close-handed. I'm gonna be close-handed with my stuff, which requires some sort of tension. But then Jesus wants us to move to being open-handed with it. And then Jesus says this in verse 21, key principle for this whole text, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And that is a profound statement that I think that all of us intuitively know is true. And the word treasure has nothing to do with uh, chess full of gold coins, right? Johnny Depp has nothing to do with it. This has everything to do with where your sense of security comes from. Like, what do you treasure? What, uh, here's a couple of questions to kind of pin down on this. Like, what occupies your thoughts, passions, and energy? I think this question right here will reveal it more than anything else. What makes you feel secure when you have it and insecure when you don't? Where are you aiming your affections? And Jesus kind of lays down this principle that is so critical in all of our lives. He says, my heart will always follow what I treasure. Always. Rarely, if ever, is it the other way around. Now, I'd like to think that it does, but it doesn't. So the question becomes, who's the leader? My heart or what I treasure? 
Therefore, wherever I want my heart to be, I need to proactively, intentionally, even painstakingly send my treasure there so that my heart will follow it. And that by definition is called a discipline. It is an act of faith. It is, you might write this phrase down, trusting that what Jesus says is true, even when I don't want to believe that it's true or feel that it's true. And then Jesus expounds in verse 22 with something that seems a little bit out of left field, but it sheds so much light on this teaching. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. And when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Now, I just want you to know that the word healthy could actually be translated as generous. So really what Jesus said is, is like when your eye, when you see things through a lens of generosity, your whole body will be full of light. It'll bring health to like your whole body. It'll bring order to your world. And he goes, but when your eye uh, is unhealthy, and actually that word could be better translated as begrudging, like closed fisted. Like, I'm not sure I want to give that up. Then he goes, your whole body is filled with darkness. And then that last sentence there, he goes, if, you're, if, you, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, in other words, you think you're actually being generous when you're not, how deep that darkness is. Wow. That is so profound. And I got to be honest with you, that is so sobering. Because I don't know about you, but like um, I have a propensity to be wired to sort of like worry about money and the future. And I don't like to call it money. I just like to call it being fiscally responsible. All right. My wife calls it worry. Okay. And, uh, and my wife actually has this like gift of faith. Like she's ne she never worries about money at all. And she is responsible with it. And she is constantly speaking words of wisdom into my life. She'll say things so annoying, like Aaron, God always provides. Like, would you stop being so annoying, right? It's like, stop having so much faith. You're making me look bad. Like she just is always like has that disposition to her. And I, I know that this is a struggle of mine where I, I want to hold on too tight and I don't think I'm being greedy. I don't think I'm being stingy. Jesus would actually call that out. And he would actually say, no, actually, you're probably being more greedy than you think you really are. I don't know if anybody else can relate to my struggle, but I'm imagining that maybe somebody does. He's basically saying that my focus, if my focus is always on money and material possessions, the, the Bible word is mammon. And it's this idea of like, what is going to be enough? And the accumulation of having, I think most of us, 99.9% .9 of us don't want to be greedy. We look at that like that is distasteful. We look down on greed in others. We don't want to be greedy. And yet more than uh, of, of us would be greedy. And yet the thing is, is, we don't think we're being greedy. We're just trying to provide. We're just trying to provide enough for our family. But we fall into this like sort of false sense of security that money brings. And when we do so, Jesus says, you're blinded to the spiritual realities that come with it, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people don't like to hear sermons on money. We are blinded to the spiritual realities that come with it. And then in case Jesus didn't make himself clear enough, he goes one level deeper. We'll finish with this verse. He says, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, the words love and hate, super strong language. In Semitic thought, it just meant choose or not choose. 
So it sort of lessens that a little bit, but he's basically just saying, this is just makes practical sense. You're, you're choosing one over the other and uh, not everything can be master. Only one thing can be master in your life. Actually, the Greek word is doulos, it meant bond slave. So he's basically saying you will either be a servant to uh, God or you'll be a servant to material possessions because by definition, master means single ownership and full-time service. The number one competition for God on the throne of our hearts is money and material possessions. Who or what has control over my life? How about this question? What do I look to for dependence and security? And for many of us, if we're just being flat out honest, we would say that we have become a servant to money in, in a couple of ways. One is just debt. Like the Bible says in Proverbs, like the servant is subject to the lender and we are um, sort of enslaved by debt, meaning like the next six paychecks are already spoken for. Like so much debt, credit card, consumer, whatever it is. And we're just like, that's all we think about. How are we going to get out of this hole? That's technically like what it means to be enslaved to something. And we always wonder if we're going to have enough. I think the point that Jesus is making here is he's saying, hey, when, when your financial world is like out of order, upside down, full of darkness, then it's going to affect every other area of your life. And we oftentimes think that um, finances is like its own separate piece, but it leaks into every other area of our life. In fact, uh, the American Psychological Association recently reported that um, the top cause of stress in the U.S. Uh, is the subject of money. And they reported that 72% of the time, Americans stressed about money at least once during the previous month. And I read that and I just kind of wonder, like, um, how many of you would like be courageous enough to join me? Because I'm going to raise up my hand. How many of you be courageous enough to go, yeah, that's true of me. In the last month, I stressed about money. How many of you just, just raise up your hands? Well, there should be lots of hands going around the room. Some of you don't want to keep them up very long. You're just like, nothing to see here. Are you signing me up for something? Like, what are you doing, right? Now, I'm just trying to say, like, if you're stressed about money, like you're in good company. Like a whole bunch of us are, and I, I would be too. And then here's the thing, you, you can even be managing your money responsibly, still stress about it. How? Well, the transmission went out. Like if you're like me, like my son's college bill came in the mail, you know, glorious, right? And, and you're always like, I was planning for this thing and then this unexpected thing happened. And, uh, and that, that's the source of stress in our lives. So I think that what we do, we don't like stress. We try to eliminate it. And so we think that the way to do away with financial stress is this little term that we love in America, financial independence. And financial independence like, is not bad. It's not wrong. Don't hear me say otherwise. But we end up making it our motivation and goal. Like, I just want to be like financially independent. And there's really only like two ways that you can get financially independent. One is if you come into a whole bunch of money, like all at once, you know, you win the lottery, you know, your crazy uncle like left you a small fortune, you know, you didn't really like him, but thank you, I'll take it. Uh, or uh, your boss decides to see how much you are worth to the organization and gives you a 200% raise, right? But wouldn't that be nice? You come into a whole bunch of money all at once. But uh, historically, that goes well for like no one. Like you end up, like most people who come into a fortune all at once end up ruining their lives in some way. They either don't have the character to handle it or other people uh, want to spend that money. And it just ruins their lives. 
There's a second way, and this would be the Jesus way. And he would basically say, hey, begin to see your resources through an eternal perspective and implement some key financial principles of financial planning. And what you do is like little by little by little by little by little, you accumulate, accumulate over time uh, throughout the years and you achieve this place of financial health. And that's really what we're after. Instead of financial independence, we should say, I want to be financially healthy. And here's a definition of financial health. And I'm sure that there is a better description of this. We have like financial advisors in our church that will probably give me a better definition. This is just what I found on Google. You thought that was funny, huh? All right, so a term used to describe the state of one's personal monetary affairs. There are many dimensions to financial health, including the amount of savings you have, how much you're putting away for retirement and how much of your income you're spending on fixed or non-discretionary expenses. Like that's a definition of financial health. And then here are the tools in the toolbox to help get you there. Uh, this probably is nothing new for most of you. Spend less than you earn. Stick to a budget. Uh, what kind of budget? Uh, the one that works for you. Pay off your credit cards, have a savings plan, invest wisely, review insurance policies, keep good records, seek wise counsel and be generous. Here's how Jesus says all of that. Lead your treasure. Don't follow it. And study after study shows that people who have financial health, not necessarily independence, but health, they're just healthier in every other area of their life. It affects you mentally, emotionally, relationally, and I would even argue spiritually. Why? Because of the wisdom that Jesus uh, taught us on a hillside in Matthew chapters five through seven, your heart always follows your treasure. Therefore, if your treasure is in trouble, your heart will be too. And this is the reason why the scriptures speak so much to the issue of money and material possessions. Therefore, it is a bit of an enigma why we don't talk to it more. Now, I understand why we don't talk to it more. Because there is sort of this like kind of representation or stigma that, you know, all churches talk about is money. In fact, uh, maybe, you know, you haven't been in church in a long time and you came today and you're like, oh, see, you know, last time, you talked, last time I was in church, 1997, they talked about money and now, and I just want to just gently, I did have a lady in the nine o'clock who had not been to church in 30 years and she was here today. Uh, she did, by the way, profess Christ. So that's cool. All right, that, that's awesome. All right, so that's great. Didn't run her away. So I just want to point something out here. Like I totally get that, understand. I've actually sat through a lot of bad teaching on money, totally feel it. I will just point this out. I'm just addressing what's next in the Sermon on the Mount. Like I have no agenda here, all right? Uh, I, I know a lot. Now I realize that this has been, you know, mishandled in maybe lots of different circles, maybe even for you. Most of the pastors that I spend time with, they are afraid to teach on this subject for fear of being misunderstood. And I totally feel that. Um, but I want to say this, um, all of us, or many of us, the honest ones of us raised our hands a few minutes ago about being stressed about money. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. So why wouldn't we talk about it? This is an issue that touches all of our lives. And the scriptures speak so much to this issue. Did you know that there are 500 verses roughly in the Bible that speak to the subject of prayer? There are another 500 roughly that speak to the subject of faith. How, how, many of you, uh, how many of you would guess how many times the scriptures speak to the subject of money and material possessions? 
It's over 2,300 times the scriptures speak to this specific subject. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables address it. Jesus talked about money more than he did the subjects of love, prayer, and forgiveness. Now, some of you are gonna mishear me and I'm not gonna let you do it. Jesus talked about money, not giving. There's a difference. He didn't talk about giving more than these subjects. He talked about money more than these subjects because he doesn't want something from you who already has it all. He wants something for you. And if money is stressing you out and it's impacting all these other areas of your lives, like if your heart is in trouble because your treasure is, Jesus says, hey, I've got some wisdom on this. So how do we move to reorder our financial health so that we can get healthy again. I wanna give you two key principles that we can hang everything else from. And if you're taking notes, uh, here's the first principle that you might write down. When we trust Jesus, we'll see ourselves as managers of his money. When we distrust Jesus, we will act like owners of money. See, the biblical word for that description is stewardship. So this is the idea. Once again, I'm speaking to followers of Jesus here. Not that there can't be some principles that would kind of uh, translate into your life if you're not. But as a follower of Jesus, we, we come to recognize we are a temporary steward of the resources that God has entrusted to us. To which some of you might push back and say, well, I'm going to take issue with that because I work really hard and I earned this money. Well, yeah, of course you did. But who, think, who do you think gave you the abilities and opportunities to do so? And so uh, actually Jesus says, hey man, like uh, you actually get to keep the vast majority of it. I'm just asking you to see it through the lens of the eternal and entrust me with a portion of it to keep your heart healthy, to meet the needs of others and to expand the kingdom of God on this earth. So money will either become your lowercase g God or you can use it to worship the one true God. Or maybe another way of saying it, we wanna worship not our wealth, but we wanna worship with our wealth. And those are the options that are in front of us. Now, the extremes that oftentimes get taught in the church is uh, what I would call, and this is what maybe some of you have maybe in an emotional reaction to, is what I would call prosperity theology. And prosperity theology is this idea, you hear it on a lot of TV preachers and that sort of thing, where it's like, hey, here is an unhealthy desire to get rich. And so we're going to use God's promises to get rich. So if you sow a seed of faith, then, you know, we're going to bless you back all this other stuff, right? And lots of purple and golds involved, okay? So prosperity theology. And then you, but then, so what happens in the church is we swing the pendulum to the other way. We might call it um, poverty theology. And that's just as destructive. This is the idea of like, well, it's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy fear of money. The only way to be holy is to be poor. And Jesus isn't teaching that we should be like poor. What he is teaching is that healthy middle of generosity theology. You may say, well, what's that? Well, in response to the gospel, meaning that um, the way that we handle resources is reflective of the gospel. We have a desire to be good stewards of the temporary wealth that passes through our hands like water shaping the stones in a river. So the dollars shape our hearts that flow in and out of our accounts. So we're going to work hard. We're going to use our gifts. We're going to do the absolute best we can to provide for our family and take them to Disneyland. We're going to plan for the future. We're going to help those in need. I'm going to leave a legacy of faith and resources to my kids' kids. And I'm going to expand the kingdom of God through the local church that feeds me spiritually and I'm on mission with. Be rich towards God. And one day we'll stand before Jesus and we'll 
hopefully hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's going to mean more than just good intentions. That's going to mean, hey, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? Here's principle number two. Being rich toward God means trusting his promises more than my impulses. It's the antidote to thinking, believing, and feeling that my resources are mine alone. Paul actually shed some wisdom on this in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. In other words, it just means open-handed. You must each decide in your heart. So this is like a personal thing between you and God, but it has corporate ramifications, most definitely. How much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. In other words, don't give in to guilt trips or shame. Why? For God loves a person who gives, what's the word? Cheerfully. And um, shame and heavy-handed approaches just kill cheer. So he's like, man, I want you to be like happy about doing this. In fact, like the Greek word there is like uh, laugh out loud kind of laughter. It's like this like carefree, like God's got me. And then he says this in verse eight, and God will generously provide all that you need. Now, he doesn't even just say, he'll just provide just enough by the skin of your teeth. No, he goes, he'll generously provide all that you need. And then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. And some of us are like, well, I don't think he ever does that. Well, it's because uh, he said need, not want. And that's the difference. And some of us are like, man, God's just not taking care of me. Well, you know, we probably need to change our definition of need. And then he goes on in verse, uh, on down in the passage, skip down to verse 10. He goes, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way. This goes beyond finances so that you can always be generous. And some of us might say, not me. I'm barely making it right now. I can't afford to be generous. And this is where trusting in God's promise over my impulse comes in. Because my emotional impulse says, be closed handed. Guard everything that I have with a closed fist because of inflation right now and the economy is unstable and something could happen. And so I've got to just hold on to everything. And God's promise says, hold it loosely with open hands because when you do that, you're inviting me into your world and watch me provide for you in ways way better than you could ever provide for yourself. I have read stacks of management books that have nothing to do with God. They're not written from a Christian perspective over the years. And almost all of them include a chapter or a section on generosity and tithing. And they will say, like, they don't say anything about God. They just say, this is just a principle that works. We're like, we don't really know why it works. It just like kind of works. And it's because this wisdom came from Jesus. And countless people that I've counseled with over the years uh, come to me like in a financial mess and they just make a decision. They're just like, you know what? We're going to start being generous and we're just going to take God at his word on this and amazing things happen. Like just some of you could testify to this. Like we could have an open mic right now. Like we won't, but we could, right? <laughs> where you just come up, you just testify like, man, like I had no idea where the money, my world was a mess and I was doing everything I could to get out of it. And I finally just decided to trust God's promise over my impulse and a check for the exact amount of the electric bill came in the mail. I don't even know where it came from. 
or a stranger paid for my meal or groceries were dropped off at the front door and it was just what I needed once they decided to trust God in this area. Why? Because when you do that, you're actually taking God at his word. You're inviting him into your financial world through the doorway of what I would call premeditated generosity. And here in the Western world, we love to give. We really do. Like we love to be generous, except our generosity is defined with these three words. It's spontaneous, it's sporadic, and it's sparing. What do I mean by that? Well, it means like um, we uh, give when we see, you know, like Santa ringing the bell out in front of the store at Christmas time. Or, um, you know, Sarah McLaughlin comes on and just guilts us <laughs> with that sad, sad song, right? And so we pull out our phone and we text $10 to save the dogs or whatever. You know, it's like, we're just, we're just gonna give this. Now here's the thing about uh, spontaneous, sporadic and sparing. We always inflate it in our minds. At least I do. You get me to the end of the year and you're like, hey, how generous were you? I'm like, I don't know, I probably gave several thousand dollars away. No, you texted to Sarah McLaughlin three times. <laughs> so we always inflate our generosity in our minds when it's sort of like sporadic. The Bible teaches something very, very different. It teaches premeditated generosity. What that means is I'm gonna decide ahead of time how much and where I'm gonna be generous. Here's the key, before my circumstances talk me out of it. And they always will. So how that's defined is it's priority giving, it's percentage giving, and it's progressive. Meaning as I go on this journey with God, he's gonna expand and grow my faith. I, I have shared this story before. When I was a junior in college, I got an internship at a church in Los Angeles and I stayed with one of the elders and his wife. And they were both in their 60s at the time. Uh, both had done uh, very well in their careers. And I remember like the most enriching part of that internship for me was sitting around the dinner table with them. And they would just share all kinds of wisdom and nuggets of truth with me. We still hear from them. They're uh, getting up there in years now. But at the time, they, they would, they would uh, share all these the nuggets of wisdom with me. And generosity was one of them. And they said, Aaron, you know, whenever we first got married, we were hardly making anything. But we just decided to trust God in this. We started tithing right away out of the gates in our marriage. And it was just amazing how God would just provide in all kinds of ways. And so we were like, we just want to continue to go on this faith journey with him. And so they said, we just started adding a percent every year. And they were up to something crazy, like almost like half of their income they were giving away at the time. And they just said, we've never gone without. This is the idea of its priority, its percentage, and its progressive. And the biblical word for premeditated generosity is a tithe. And I remember I mentioned a few moments ago, three words for generosity, almsgiving, offerings, and tithes. I'll get into a description of that here in just a minute. But a tithe is just simply means a tenth. It is a tenth of your income that you'll be generous with before your circumstances talk you out of it. Here's what is ingenious about the tithe. It's premeditated and it's proportionate. It structures generosity into my life that is proportionate to my income. Now, why is 10% so heart-shaping? Here's what I think that it means. 10% is not enough to ruin you, but it is enough to get your attention and you're gonna trust God in this area. It, it is saying this, God, I believe you can do a better job providing for me and my family on 90% of my income than what I can do on 100%. It makes sure that the heart leads the treasure rather than the treasure leads the heart. And so um, the Bible uses these three different words, uh, offerings. This is when uh, you get uh, that letter in the mail from your um, sister's, 
uh, daughter who's going on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic and you write a check for $25 to support that. This is when you are, you know, responding to the charities. It's, it's your offerings. It's spontaneous giving. Then there's alms, which we've already talked about. This is what Jesus is addressing in the passage. This is like uh, meeting the tangible needs of others that, that cannot provide for themselves. And then there would be tithes. And that is a tenth to the local church that feeds you spiritually you're on mission with. And the most direct thing that Jesus says to this, or the most direct thing that God says to this is Malachi 3. And he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, one place, so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great, you won't have enough room to take it in. And then he says, try it, put me to the test. One of the only times God talks trash in the scriptures. He's just like, man, I just, I want something for you. Some of you don't believe me. So I'm just saying, man, bring it. Just, just try it. And what I think it, um, it sobers me up, like as the pastor of this church is the vast majority of us are not. Now, part of my, uh, most of my responsibility as your pastor is to shepherd you and to care for you and encourage you and give you hope and let you know you are loved by God just as you are. Part of my responsibility as your pastor is to say hard things so that you'll grow. And this last week, like our finance team came to me and I say finance team, not the whole staff, just our finance team came and said, hey, we estimate just by looking at all the numbers that less than 10% of our church tithes, which I'm not concerned about the money. I am concerned about, are we willing to trust God in this area of our lives? And so what I wanna ask you to do in the spirit of Malachi 3 is I wanna just lovingly challenge you to try it. Like just try the tithe. If you've gotten away from it, come back to it again and just try it. And I wanna ask you to do this, try it for six months. That's the end of July. At the end of July, if you are in worse shape financially, if you're more stressed about money then than you are now, uh, if you cannot pay your bills, just simply email our finance team, copy me on the email, and we will send it all back to you. And I mean that. And I'm not saying that as a gimmick, right? That is not a sales pitch. That is just the amount of confidence I have in God's promise. I was going to say nine o'clock clapped. Uh, so you guys, you guys were a little late to the game, but I get it. All right. Different crowd. Okay. So here's what I want to do as I close up. I want to encourage you uh, to uh, sign up for something called Financial Foundations. This is something that our church offers. It's a five-week small group designed to help you take your next steps towards being a better steward of financial resources. And it covers all the tools in the toolbox that I just mentioned. And we uh, launched this um, last, set, uh, last spring. Um, and since spring of 2021, we've had over 300 people go through it. 88% uh, of them say they would recommend the class to others. 70% said budgeting and stewardship principles were their biggest takeaways. Registration for this is open for the spring classes and you can register at this link right here. You can take a picture of it on your phone or you can find it on the website. We would love to have you. But finally, I, I just wanna just kind of close with this, man. Like the tithe is the example but the cross is the standard. What I want you to know is that God didn't tithe Jesus. Like he gave him all, like he gave it all. God, the whole point of the gospel message is that God is a generous God and he wants not your checkbook, he wants your heart. And the reality is, is that everything that we own will have somebody else's name on it a hundred years from now. 
So we want to see it through the lens of the eternal. And I want to end with this uh, fun story with an important message from uh, John Ortberg, and then then we'll be done. Uh, John writes these words. He says, my grandmother taught me how to play Monopoly. She was a lovely woman, but she was the most ruthless Monopoly player you have ever seen. Imagine what would have happened if Donald Trump would have married Leona Helmsley and they would have had a child. That's what my grandmother was like. Now you have a picture of what it was like to play her. She understood that the purpose of the game was to acquire, acquire, acquire. When I played, I liked to hold on to my money because it was fun to have money, but I was just a kid. My grandmother would buy up everything that she could and eventually she would become the master of the board. Every time I landed on one of her properties, she would just stick out her hand and smile. And every time that we played, she would take every one of my dollars and I would have to quit in utter defeat. She would always hold up her money and say, someday you'll learn how to play the game. Well, that someday finally came. I spent one whole summer with a neighborhood friend who taught me how the game was to be played. We would play Monopoly for hours. And in those hours, I came to understand the whole point. It is the acquisition of stuff. It was all about money and possessions. And I would bend the rules or even break the rules if I had to, to get ahead of my grandmother. At the end of the summer, more cunning and more experienced, I sat down to have a big showdown with her. Slowly, I began to expose all of her vulnerabilities. Relentlessly, I drove her off the board completely. But then it hit me. It happened around Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother. She's the one who taught me how to play the game. She was an old lady, a widow, the woman who had raised my mom and loved me deeply. And I had just taken everything she had. I had destroyed her financially and psychologically. I watched her hand me the last dollar as she quit in utter defeat. And it was the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) And I did a dance. I ran around the room. I gloated and flaunted my victory. And when I finally settled down, she said, there's one last thing I need to teach you about the game. And that is that it all goes back in the box. But I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to leave the board out, bronze it, frame it as a reminder of my ability and my great victory. I had slaughtered my grandmother. (laughs) No, she said, none of it is really yours. You got all excited about it for a while, but it was around a long time before you sat down and it'll be here a long time after you're gone. And she said this, players come and go, but eventually all goes back in the box. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to follow our heart, not our treasure. So we're gonna take you at your word and send our treasure where we want our heart to be. Lord, forgive us when we have, figuratively speaking, been closed-handed, fearful, stressed, worried about the future. When you've beckoned us, you've invited us to be open-handed with you to invite you into this place in our worlds that we oftentimes don't wanna talk about publicly with other people. It is a very private matter, but it is a deeply spiritual one. And so we wanna offer that to you. God, I pray that if there's anybody who misheard me or misunderstood me, I pray that just right now in the quietness of this moment that the Holy Spirit would just um, minister to them. Just to know there's no agenda here. We just simply wanna invite you into this place of our lives that stresses and spins so many of us out. We trust you, we thank you. We wanna make a difference for your kingdom here on earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody says, amen.